This is The Guardian. Once the government purchases water, it's gone. It's out of the market, but the demand that exists in the market today is still there. The government purchasing water does nothing to ameliorate the demand. And as the minister says, we're about to enter another dry period. I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. I'm joined this week by Senator Perrin Davey, Deputy Leader of the Nationals and Shadow Minister for Water and Emergency Management. This week, the Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, unveiled a plan agreed by four of the five Murray-Darling Basin jurisdictions to extend the timeline to complete water efficiency projects, but controversially for farmers' groups and the Nationals, uncap the amount of water that the Commonwealth can buy back. We'll be chatting about the revamped Basin Plan, which will need either the opposition or the Greens to support Labor's plan to pass the Senate, as well as the referendum to enshrine an Indigenous voice in the Constitution and Australia's preparedness for the upcoming bushfire season. Welcome, Senator Davey. Thank you for having me, Paul. What are the key features of the government's proposed revamp of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and which aspects do the coalition like or dislike? Well, uh, the key features are, according to the Minister, and bear in mind we have not seen the draft legislation yet, so I'm I'm basing it on the information uh, to hand, but um, she says it will give us more time to deliver the Basin Plan, in her words, more opportunity but also, uh, and very importantly, more opportunity to buy back water off, she says, willing sellers. There's long been debate about what a willing seller is and um, who the beneficiaries of water buybacks are. So there's no secret that, you know, the Nationals and the Liberals for a long time have been calling for an extension to the Basin Plan deadlines, which the state governments have been calling for. Thanks to COVID and thanks to flooding, a lot of these projects were put on hold, infrastructure projects that the states had committed to deliver. And they were calling for an extension to the deadline. We've supported that extension because we believe if you allow the states to finish those projects, there is no need to come back into the market and buy water off farmers. So the fact that the minister is linking the two and saying, we won't have one without the other, I think is devastating. It also shows that her priority is buybacks, which, in my opinion, are not only the most harmful for regional communities, but are also the laziest form of water buyback. It's just transferring ownership from one owner to another. It does nothing to actually deliver better environmental outcomes, which is what the Basin Plan should be about. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned there's some debate about what a willing seller is. What's the issue there? Is the the government coercing people by offering them money for their water? Uh, Well, it's long been the opinion of farmers. Once the government announces they're going to enter the market, the, the water market responds accordingly and prices go up because there is a perception, even if it's not the reality, that the government will pay a premium for the water licence. I have, indeed, I heard when the department inadvertently announced prematurely that they were looking to re-enter the market to bridge the gap, I heard from a water broker that he had some farmers who had water listed on the market, they rang up and said, actually, pull my water off the market, I'll wait for the government because they'll pay me more. That is the perception out there. 
There's also the problem where farmers who are doing it tough will see it as an easy out. And I have heard people describe it as this is a way for farmers to be able to retire with dignity. And that may be true, but the fact of the matter is those farmers can sell their water tomorrow into the water market to another farmer, to an investor who then sells it to other farmers, and it is still in the consumptive pool. So it can still do the rounds and will be used at the end of the day. Once the government purchases water, it's gone. It's out of the market, but the demand that exists in the market today is still there. The government purchasing water does nothing to ameliorate the demand. And as the minister says, we're about to enter another dry period. And we know in dry periods, the price of water, whether it's permanent or temporary acquisition, goes through the roof. During the millennium drought, to buy temporary water, so to buy water for one year only, it went up to $1,200 to $2,000 a megalitre, depending on where you were in the basin. Whereas during a wet year, like last year, it was down to $25 to $50. But she is entering the market just as we are coming onto the edge of a new dry spell. And we have lowering commodity prices. Indeed, we've got the wine grape industry virtually on their knees. And a lot of people are worried that they will see the government coming into the market as, a, as an easy way out, but that will then impact on dairy farmers, on almond growers, on citrus growers, because they're in the market, but that water will be gone mm. and uh, then they won't have access to it. And what is your understanding of why Victoria didn't sign on to this revamped plan and what will the effect be if they didn't sign on but the other basin states did? So Victoria didn't sign up. They've long been consistent and I will give credit to them. They are a Labor government, but I'll give credit to them. They have been absolutely consistent since day one of the Basin Plan that they did not support buyback. They have done a lot of work on infrastructure projects, on delivering work that makes their systems more efficient in Victoria. They've done a lot of work on environmental water deliveries as well. And they have said to the federal government, no, if you want buyback, we're not going to facilitate that. We're not going to make it any easier for you to purchase water from our farmers. They still have some remaining infrastructure projects, but they're not going to sell out their communities just to get the extra money for those projects. Whereas what we've seen in New South Wales, on the one hand, you've got the Premier, Chris Minns, standing up in the chamber in Parliament saying, they do not support buyback and they will not sell out their communities. And less than two weeks later, he signed up because the federal minister has waved this carrot and said, we'll give you, I'm told, nine figures of extra funding, millions of dollars in extra funding, if you sign up and stand next to me and say you support my new plan. And the feedback I'm getting from communities in New South Wales, they just gobsmacked. You know, the word Judas has, has been thrown about, which is pretty strong. And then yesterday we had Rose Jackson, the New South Wales Water Minister, again saying, no, we don't support buyback. So what is it? Do they support the minister's new plan, which includes buyback? She's made it very clear. Or, or don't they? And um, I think New South Wales needs to clarify their position. And the biggest issue we have here is what can the states do to prevent buyback. 
from their communities if the minister pushes ahead by herself. Mm. I want to talk about the alternatives to buybacks. You mentioned that flood and COVID delayed water efficiency projects, but what does the evidence say? Are those enough to deliver the required amount of water for the original Murray-Darling Basin plan without these changes and uncapping buybacks? Well, and this is where it all comes down to how you account or how you accredit the outcomes that we're achieving. And and I really want to reinforce the fact that we are achieving significant outcomes with the water we already have and the work that has already been done. The minister talked about the devastation of the millennium drought. I lived through the devastation of the millennium drought. I don't want to see that again either. We had the reality where for two successive years in a row, the whole system did not get enough inflows to meet South Australia's water requirements for their baseline river flows industry and needs. So everyone was on their knees. We've just come out of another significant drought, which in some parts of the basin was actually worse than the millennium drought. But during that whole time, even though inflows were incredibly low, because we've already seen 2,100 gigalitres of water transferred to the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, because we've seen a new way of thinking about how we manage our water and how we manage our systems, uh, we saw South Australia get incredibly vast amounts, like thousands of megalitres more than their baseline requirements each year during that drought. So the Basin Plan is working. Everyone who says the Basin Plan is not working, um, they're only looking at have we got the 2750 and the 450 and have we got these numbers? And it shouldn't be about the numbers. It should be about what we're actually achieving with that. And one of the most frustrating aspects, the minister recently had a, please give me your ideas. How can I finish the basin plan consultation? We saw the NFF put forward a range of ideas, not all linked to licence transfer. We saw Irrigators councils put forward ideas, the VFF put forward ideas. Everyone was participating in good faith. These are projects, management ideas, ways to better use the water that will lead to better environmental outcomes, worth an equivalent, but without having the licence transfer. And the problem I see it is that everyone's going, no, without the licence transfer, that's not a water saving. And that's a very narrow way to focus on how to get environmental outcomes. Now, Labor's new plan will require legislation. What sort of amendments or concessions will you be seeking to address your concerns? Do you want to keep the cap on buybacks? Are you going to insist on a positive or neutral assessment of economic impacts of all projects to achieve the 450 gigalitres of environmental water? Well, certainly, I mean, I've got to see the proposals and the legislation before I can actually talk definitively. And obviously, I've got to have the conversations with my party rent. But our position to date is that the cap on buyback is there. We still support that. There is still over 200 gigalitres of available buyback facility under that cap already. So the minister's getting a bit ahead of herself saying she needs to buy back more than what's already there. And the intergovernmental agreement outlining the socioeconomic test the Murray-Darling Ministerial Council agreed to in 2018, that's sacrosanct because that is all of the state government saying we know the harm that can be caused if we have 
ill-conceived water recovery from our communities. So any future water recovery should comply with that criteria test, which does enable strategic buyback. It does enable uh, infrastructure projects to be carried out, led by the state government, but also importantly, with the support of their communities. So that test, I mean, it was, it was a, a very well thought through test and it was supported by everyone, including South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, and even the ACT, so that we can progress the last remaining parts of the Basin Plan, which is a very small component. I know the Minister likes to talk about only the 450, but what she's ignoring is the fact that of the Baseline Basin Plan, you know, we're over 95% there. If the states are allowed to finish their projects to fruition, and if they deliver as, as envisaged, we're virtually there. And you don't say to a kid who's just come home with a 95% score in, the, in their exam, sorry, go back and do it again because you didn't get 100%. You go, well done, that's a really good effort. And how can we improve in the future? And that's what we should be looking at. 95%, but lower if you're just if you're measuring the environmental water, the 450. Tanya Plibersek well, says two, two of the 450. But, but, but that's because she's only looking at like one part of one chapter of the Basin Plan. The Basin Plan is, is more than 12 chapters long and she's looking at Chapter 7 and going, according to Chapter 7, there is a section in there where we should have a 450 but the whole Chapter 7 is like a seesaw. It's up and down. It's the adjustment mechanism. And the key part of Chapter 7 is we've got a seesaw. It can go down by 650. It can go up by 450. But the key is it can't change more than 5% from the original sustainable diversion limit that was identified in the Basin Plan. That's the key part she should be focusing on, not this one, one number in a plan that is full of numbers. Like, I mean, you can break down the numbers of the Basin Plan. There are so many numbers in it that your head spins. And you can go to the valleys and go valley by valley. Let's look at the numbers there. Have we achieved everything? And I will say that in most of the individual valleys, they've already achieved and they're already operating within their sustainable diversion limits. So to focus on that 450 is absolute misdirection. Now, you might want to talk about the other parts of the Basin Plan, but the Greens are very focused on the 450. They want a guarantee, and it sounds like they want staged delivery every year, you know, progress marks to reach that 450 gigalitres of environmental water. Is this one of those times where it's better to cut a deal directly with Labor to save them being driven to accept conditions that you may not like that would be imposed by the Greens? Oh, my door has always been open, and I've made that clear to the minister um, when I first got appointed as her shadow. I wrote to her, we sat down and we met uh, last year in, in August and I said, I, I would be happy to talk to you to try and find a way through uh, because the Basin Plan was passed in 2012 with uh, Tony Burke, who was then the Water Minister, and Barnaby Joyce working side by side to try and get this through the parliament. And they did so with bipartisan support. And again, in 2018, uh, when we when we uh, did the socio-economic neutrality test with the ministerial council, we also worked with uh, Labor federally, and we worked with all the state Labor governments that that were around the table to make sure that we could come up with something that could work 
We know there, there are always sort of losers in the mix, but we've got to look at how we get the best outcome, the most balanced outcome, so that we don't harm our communities. Because at the end of the day, and particularly with buybacks, while a farmer might might be recompensed for their water and they can do with the money as they wish, the flow-on impacts. So even if they convert to a dry land enterprise, dry land farming is normally less labour intensive than irrigation, so there'll be less work on the farm. You know, I live in Daniloquin. We've got the largest rice mill in the Southern Hemisphere. We're very proud of it. But you take some of the rice farmers out of the mix because they've sold their water and they're not growing rice anymore. They might still do some opportunistic cropping of wheat or something else, but they won't be growing rice. So that's less rice going through the rice mill. And if the rice mill doesn't have an economy of scale, we saw it in the millennium drought, they put that rice mill in mothballs, 200 people lost their jobs. That's 200 people that inevitably leave the town because it's hard to find another job. Take those people out of town, the kids out of the school, suddenly you've got teachers losing jobs. Suddenly you've got nurses losing jobs because we don't have the community that we had, the footy club closes. These are the impacts that communities are so concerned about. They've seen it. They saw it in the millennium drought. They saw it after the ill-conceived buybacks that were being conducted between 2008 and 2012 before we even had the basin plan finalised. Walkall, the Walkall irrigation districts in my area, um, 50% of their water licences were sold to the government. That's 50%. That is a, a massive outtake of water from an irrigation network that has really worked very hard to try and recover from that massive adjustment. And to come out and say, yep, we've got hundreds of reports showing the pain that communities have been through, but it doesn't matter, we're still coming back with buybacks, is just a slap in the face for all those communities. Hmm. After the 2022 election, you were elected deputy leader of your party. How did that change your role? And are there any initiatives beyond your portfolio responsibilities that you're involved in as deputy to try and broaden the Nationals' appeal? It's uh, it's meant that I'm home far less. Um, I'm travelling around. I'm out and about and doing a lot a lot more. I was always doing stuff with our grassroots in New South Wales as Senator for New South Wales, but um, I'm out and about and talking to our grassroots members in the LNP in Queensland and the CLP in the Northern Territory and head over to Western Australia. So just talking to people. And the other things that I am really passionate about doing and making sure that the nationals are seen to be involved is things that will encourage more women into the parliament or more young people into the parliament. So I have a lot to do with our young nationals. You know, I like to say that I'm I'm a young nat, although I don't think I comply with the rules anymore. <laughs> My heart's a young nat, even if <laughs> even if the birth date doesn't comply. But I, I also participate. I do uh, panel sessions with the University of New South Wales Pathway to Politics program about getting women into politics. I'm really passionate about talking to the whole spectrum, so not just nationals, but also talking to women from the Greens or from Labor or from Liberals, because I also want to show people that it's not all adversarial. Politics is about contributing and making, trying to stand up and represent your communities. And I honestly believe that everyone who has put their hand up 
who is in parliament, that is their goal. And that should be respected. Whether you agree with how they do it or what their policy ideas are is a different matter. But to me, it's really important to show people that it's more important to look for our commonalities and then agree to disagree on the peripheries than to fixate on what our differences are because if we're only looking at our differences, that's where you start to lose respect and that's where it becomes a hostile and toxic workplace. I'm also involved in the uh, Parliamentary Leadership Task Force, which is tasked with implementing the recommendations of the Jenkins Review, so about trying to make the workplace uh, a better and safer and more respectful place. So there's a lot of things that I do on the outside, just my portfolio responsibilities that I thankfully have the full backing of my party room and we're really happy that we've got a seat at that table and we are considered to be a very important partner in that in that process. And does that task force, is that the one that's deciding when to set PWSS up as a, as a proper human resources function in, in parliament that would be able to investigate complaints, for example, that were made against former Liberal Senator David Van? Is that, is that that process? Uh, well, the PWSS, I won't comment on potentially individual. The PWSS has been established, but it's not a legislated. It's not a legislative body yet. It, it is established. It's operational. We're now working through the government is drafting legislation that will actually formalise the PWSS and its processes. We all support the intent and we're working very closely with the government to make sure that we can address that and get that through. It was a recommendation of the Jenkins Review and all sides have come out and supported those recommendations and we're working through it. I will say in its early days at being established, the SS is already achieving a lot of good things and I've spoken to both staff and colleagues who have used the PWSS just to, as an advisory so they can reach out and, and go, I've got this issue, how should I respond? And the feedback has been very positive. They believe the confidentiality that is being provided. They also believe the expertise and the soundness of the advice they're getting. So it's, it's working for both. And it's really important that it's not just about providing politicians with advice on how to go about things. It's also providing free and open advice to staff who might have an issue or who want to put in a complaint. And the good thing is they have got the investigative powers and they can make recommendations back or they can then also recommend whether it should um, go further if it is deemed to be a more serious, significant issue. So uh, we're working through that as we speak. And I think there is legislation is due to be debated potentially even in the next sitting fortnight. I have a few on The Voice. The Nationals decided to oppose The Voice uh, last year, uh, but your leader, David Littleproud, he has been prepared to confront some of the unsavoury elements in the debate. This week, he said the Nationals would call out Gary Johns for comments that if Indigenous Australians want a voice, they should learn English. Were you concerned about those comments and do you think the debate has become uncivil? Yes, I was concerned about those those comments. I think it does no one any service to become so base level in the debate. I think that we are all far more intelligent than that and more nuanced because I heard that comment and I was offended. So I can just imagine how our Indigenous colleagues or First Nations people 
would have felt to, to listen to that. Um, I think that it is commensurate on all of us to focus on the issues, not the personalities, not the people. But I will say the argument is not just one-sided. I mean, I, I have read comments from people on the yes side calling out my colleague, Senator Nampajimpa Price, who, and using really dreadful terminology about Warren Mundine. And we've heard about the mental health toll that the debate is taking on Warren Mundine, which is um, very sad. And I won't repeat those comments, but I think we all need to respect everyone and understand this is an issue that people have their legitimate feelings about. It's one of those classic issues that we should be focusing on what do we agree on and what everyone agrees on is we do need to get better outcomes for our Indigenous people and for our regional and remote people because most of the disadvantage, most of the gap are in our most regional and remote Indigenous communities. And if we can address those issues and get services into those remote areas and make sure that they've got access to health outcomes, they've got access to education outcomes, that will help overall. And it will help not just Indigenous Australians, it will help us. So we should focus on what we agree on. Where we disagree, and my perspective is, I just struggle with the concept of having something permanently enshrined in our constitution that will only ever service one cohort of our multicultural society. I have always been taught that we are all equal, regardless of our heritage, regardless of what our background is, and regardless of what colour our skin is, and we should respect that. And we can all put our hand up for parliament if we want, or, or local government, or our political processes. And I would encourage anyone who feels that passionately to get involved. And anyone can, anyone can put their, any Australian citizen can put their hand up for our federal parliament. The difference with this body will be that my children won't be able to run for election for it. You know, other people's children will never be able to aspire to participating in that voice because that voice is not for them. And that's the divisiveness that I don't feel comfortable with. In April, you said politicians will not be able to shut the voice up despite what the PM says. Uh, Given Clause 3 of the constitutional change specifies that Parliament would be able to set the voices, composition, functions, powers and procedures, is that a genuine concern? Well, I was quoting Megan Davis. So um, that was my concern is that that is the commentary that is coming from the voice proponents. And so I do have concerns if they see it as that Parliament won't be able to shut them up. I take on board that Prime Minister Albanese keeps pointing to that clause saying, well, Parliament will decide. But I also point to his commentary that where he said it will be a very brave Parliament that chooses to ignore the voice. So what is it, Prime Minister? Is it that we can overlook their advice or we can determine what they look like or, or do we have to listen to the voice? And that's that's my concern. Mm. 
This week, the Australasian Fire Authorities Council said that this year is going to be the most significant bushfire season since the 2019-20 Black Summer fires. In your capacity as Shadow Emergency Management Minister, have you sought a briefing from the government about this and how do you rate Australia's bushfire preparedness? Yes, I have sought a briefing and I've had a preliminary briefing with Minister Watt's office and um, he's he's been very forthcoming and very helpful. Uh, I have another briefing coming up in the next parliamentary sitting period. I am concerned that for all the preparedness of NEMA and the centralised disaster response centres, I'm not sure whether the on the ground work by the states has actually been done. So I will be asking at my next briefing how much preparation the states have done. I have noted the Victorian Farmers Federation are very concerned. They don't believe the Victorian state government is ready for it. And I'm not sure whether we've had enough sort of preliminary cold burning to get ready in New South Wales. I'm very concerned about the state of our fire breaks and fire trails, particularly in our national parks, given that we had flooding given that we've had such wet seasons, has the maintenance work been done? And if not, they need to actually let people know so that we can be honest with Australians and say we're facing a significant risk this season, made worse by the fact that we weren't able to, for legitimate reasons, weren't able to conduct the maintenance work on fire trails. So if you live on the edge of a national park or a state forest, be extra vigilant because if you just say to people, yeah, we've done all the preparation, you lull them into a sense of complacency and then um, that exacerbates the risk. Thank you so much for joining us, Senator Davey. I, I really appreciated the chat. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. This episode was produced by Phoebe McElraith. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening and see you next time.